What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Damian Barling reminding you to check out the Sacramento Kings podcast right here on the Hoopball Podcast Network for all of your Sacramento Kings news and notes. You can follow me on Twitter at Damian Barling and you can follow us at Hoopball Kings. Don't miss a single episode of the Sacramento Kings podcast right here on the Hoopball Podcast Network. The following is a hoop ball presentation. Hi guys, it's I Lost Within Bank back with another instalment of the Pelican Scoop. I hope you're all doing well out there. I am for sure. We're settling in to A mere week from the NBA restart. The bubble is set. Today, we've got another special guest. We've had one after the other, which has just been fantastic. I've had a chat with a very special man by the name of Todd Spear, the author of Drazen, the remarkable life and legacy of the Mozart of basketball. It's a great book. Um, make sure you go and get a copy of that, and we'll have a chat to him coming up. Also, we're going to do a review of the first scrimmage of the bubble. So we got to see a bit of Pell's action yesterday. They took on the Nets in the bubble, um, and we're going to have my thoughts on that and what I thought of the whole experience. Overall, spoilers alert, I thought it was good fun, um, and we will talk about the scores and the like in there, so if you haven't watched it, I'll give you a little spoilers alert before I say what the scores are, but otherwise... So let's get into it. I'd like to introduce Todd Spear, an aficionado on Pistol Pete Maravich as well as Drazen Petrovic. Todd, how are you going? I'm good, Lyle. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. Oh, no, pleasure's all mine. And um, we're going to talk about uh, a few things today. Uh, we're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about uh, the life and times of the late, great Pete Maravich, uh, Pistol Pete as a lot of New Orleans fans, I suppose, from the, the late 70s or early 70s, uh, pardon me, uh, will remember. And I suppose uh, if you have a look at some of his footage from yesteryear, you'll be equally as impressed as how talented this guy was. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, firstly, uh, your, your book, uh, the, the uh, book about Drazen Petrovic, uh, another guy that was taken, I suppose, a lot sooner than... Uh, than anticipated. There's been a lot of um, documentaries and the like that have come out of him. I know ESPN did one, um, I think it was Once Brothers, I think, if I recall correctly. That's right. Um, what inspired you to write this book and, and uh, yeah, how have you found it's been received? Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, the book came out in, uh, in 2016, but it was uh, the process began as early as uh, late 2011. So it was about a four-year process, three-and-a-half-year process to write the book. Uh, it had always been a dream of mine to write r- write a book about basketball. Um, 
and uh, you know it's obviously obviously a passion of mine. But I was always interested in Drazen's story, and uh, you know, I think uh, any project uh, you know starts from from interest, and, and Drazen's story was very unique. And I think the the more I peeled back layers, um, you know, I love to research things, and, and Drazen's story. The further I got into it, the more I realised there was something there. And um, as you rightly recall, Once Brothers was was really one of the uh, one of ESPN's better documentaries, at least that I've seen in, in, the, in yeah, the, the basketball range. And yeah, I think uh, what that exposed, uh, in addition to my book, is that the Drazen story was more about basketball. It was, um, you know, a story of perseverance. Um, about breaking through barriers, um, changing perceptions, um, hard work, you know, which, which resonates with people and, and ultimately story of tragedy. So, um, as I said, it was a long process writing the book. What started out as a passion project turned into something more. His family uh, got involved. Um, and yeah, it's, it's ultimately myself published. Uh, it was then purchased by a publisher. Um, it's been translated into three languages. So uh, to say it's um, exceeded expectations uh, goes almost without saying. But to have a small piece of, of Drazen's legacy to be tied into that, uh, yeah, means a lot. So, uh, yeah, a dream come true to write a book. Um, and just uh, very fortunate that it was such a great story. It made my job easy, I suppose. Absolutely. And I suppose he grew up in a time where uh, Yugoslavia was probably in a bit of uh, turmoil. There was uh, a bit going on over there. And then to be a Croatian, uh, I suppose, a Croatian basketballer, come over and play in the NBA. And, you know, there was all these question marks as to how his career would have developed and, and what if. He's taken at 28. Uh, yeah, Correct. taken at 28, wasn't he? He was um, quite young. And that was a tragic... Um, car accident if my memory serves me right and um right. yeah i mean phenomenal that you've uh that you've, you've put this together and to have the family involved that's a testament to itself and it shows that your hard work and, and i think um yeah the way it's been received from all reports is is phenomenal uh, you were saying off air that it's been uh, translated into croatian which is his native language i mean geez that's awesome <laughs> well, I was fortunate enough the uh, the Petrovic family coordinated an event uh, when that Croatian uh, translation uh, launched. Um, gosh, it's been three years now. So to, to be there, to go to Zagreb, uh, where Drazen once lived, uh, to, to spend time with his family, uh, talk about surreal. But yeah, to have, it was almost a little bit of pressure, you know, knowing that you're something that you had worked so hard on was now being evaluated by the people who knew him best. Um, but I suppose the greatest compliment I've, I've received with the book was that Drazen's only brother uh, told me that he learnt things about Drazen by reading my book. So I don't think, I, I probably should have retired right then and there and quit. And, uh, you know, because that's probably as, as good a compliment as, as you can get. So uh, it's, that it's available in Croatian and will be forever is, yeah, just awesome. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm in awe. I reckon that is just to be able to put something together like that and then to have the, um, I suppose, the acknowledgement and appreciation from the family as well. I mean, you're part of his legacy now. You're intertwined. So, you know, that in <laughs> itself is, is phenomenal and I applaud you for that. Um, yeah, and I've, like I said, off air, I've got one on, on order and if anyone out there is listening, go and get a copy of this book by uh, Todd Spears. Make sure you go and get that. Um, where can we grab that one from? Uh, Amazon is, is probably the best bet uh, as far as quickest delivery. It also offers the uh, the digital version, the Kindle version. So uh, I would recommend going to Amazon. Awesome. So get that one. That's the Mozart of Basketball, Drazen Petrovic by Todd Spear. If, if you need something to read, I know we're all looking for a hoops fix. So get out there and, and get a copy of that. And um, no doubt I'll be having a read and be talking about it on here in future episodes, no doubt. So what we've all been waiting for, and I've been, I have it on good authority that, that Todd is the guru on Pistol Pete Maravich. So I might have put him on the spot here with that, uh, <laughs> with that build up, but um, for sure, Todd, I'd love to talk about him. He's, a, he's a, I suppose a almost a part of folklore in New Orleans as um, as part of the New Orleans Jazz and Louisiana State um, as well. Uh, from what I understand, he was one of the greatest college basketballers of of nearly all time if not all time and um 
yeah, can you tell me a little bit about Pistol Pete and, and what drew you to him? Yeah, well, you know, we can we all have things we're passionate about. We can only speak from our perspective. But you know, Pete is uh, uh, to say that he's an inspiration uh, even today um, is an understatement. Um, I spend time thinking about Pete every day, in fact, and, and research his life. Um, uh, almost, it's almost an endless pursuit for me. Uh, he was an inspiration uh, growing up. Uh, of course, um, as a kid, you're attracted to uh, things that capture your imagination. And uh, I, I was not even aware of, of Pete while he was alive, he, I was only four years old uh, and on the other side of the world, but um, became aware of him mostly through a, a home video uh, called uh, Showman Spectacular Guards of the NBA, which was released by NBA Entertainment uh, in 1990. I, I never saw a copy until I think 1993 or 94 and uh, was just completely captivated by um, four-minute segment on, on his career you know, black and white footage, grainy footage of, of moves by a player that seemed out of his generation almost. So from that moment on, um, I've, I've, you know, I read everything on, on Pete. As I said, I research his life endlessly, um, pursue uh, footage, um, pursue audio, anything that can, you know, peel back a little bit of more information about about what he achieved but as you mentioned uh, his college career is is probably probably what he is best known for is the all-time leading scorer in the history of the NCAA 3,667 points you know obviously without the benefit of a three-point line only played three years because uh freshmen weren't eligible um in 66-67 when he when he got his start but um he, he went to the NBA but but his best years came when he was a member of the New Orleans Jazz. So once again, back in Louisiana where, where he was a college hero, that's where he made his home after he retired from the game. And um, he was a resident of Louisiana when he passed away at, at the age of 40. But just a, just a huge inspiration to me. Um, you know, I can trace my lineage. Uh, I was fortunate enough to play college basketball in America. And, and I can t- hand on heart honestly say that the reason for that was uh, I watched his instructional tapes. Um, I heard about, you know, learned about his story through a movie that was made about his childhood. Um, dedicating your life to something um, was pretty cool to a young kid. So to see that Pete had dedicated his life to basketball um, was just completely captivating to, to someone like me. And, and I've effectively done the same, albeit with far less results, but Pete's passion for basketball just uh, resonates so much every single day of my life. So uh, I owe a lot to him. And, uh, yeah, it's such a special story, um, but also, you know, a story that's a little bit heartbreaking at times as well, but um, just a wonderful legacy to the game. Yeah, any game you watch today, you see a little bit of Pete. So uh, very, very special. Yeah, and it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he got that the Pistol Pete moniker because of his shooting style, wasn't he? Shot from the from his hip instead of further out. And um, I think I saw a stat today. I was doing a bit of digging and, and saw that someone had worked out how much he would have actually scored had there been a three-point line, and it was astronomical. I think it was over nearly 4,000 points or something like that or more and average nearly 57 points a game or something like that. Um, yeah, well, well, the nickname... The you're, you are correct. The nickname did come from sort of a, a shooting style. As a high school player, he was he was very almost underdeveloped uh, physically when he first played uh, as an eighth grader at Daniel High School. And his the ball would come from his hip up through sort of his rib cage, and it was uh, like a gunfighter, you know, drawing his his pistol. So that's where the nickname came from. Um, and and you're right about the the statistic. Uh, was Dale Brown, who was the longtime coach at LSU, even coached uh, Shaq there. He uh, apparently went through the play-by-play data from all the games that Maravich played at LSU and, and based on the distance recorded from the shots, was able to determine how many additional points he would have averaged with a three-point line. But just just a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was going through some footage. There's a game against uh, Loyola, uh, which was based in Louisiana. Um, and they actually played on the... Um, they played a game against LSU. 
December 2nd of, uh, of 68. And it was played at, uh, on the same floor that the, uh, the Buccaneers, the ABA team, uh, played. So there was a three-point line there. Now, the film's not complete, but in the first six minutes of the game, uh, Pete made three set shots from behind that three-point line, and it was, was rather effortless. So to imagine what his numbers would be like with a three-point line, it, yeah, ex- certainly would have exceeded 50 points a game, but it, w- it would be nice to know just exactly how many points that was. Absolutely, and I, I bet it would have wowed some people back then if they were sitting there watching it, uh, watching a guy launch trees like that. They'd be thinking it was 2020 with the with the amount of trees he'd be launching. But um, absolutely, phenomenal talent, no doubt. I mean, he joined a struggling, well, an expansion team in, in the the New Orleans Jazz. Um, they didn't start so well, though. I know the New Orleans Jazz went and. Yeah, mortgage the future, basically, as, as we were talking about off-air, to, to go and get him. Um, do you think that was because of the, uh, I suppose, affection of this man being so, uh, I guess, linked with um, Louisiana? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Jazz were... Um, I think I think the, the, the manoeuvre to get Pete, you know, which they gave up two firsts, two seconds, um, two picks in the expansion draft... Like they, they, you know, they gave up a lot to get one player, and and the the deal was called the Louisiana Purchase by the media. Like it was just this, um, such an exaggerated deal, uh, especially by a team that, that had no assets. So Pete was technically their first player, um, and decisions were made by people in the jazz organization that, that were not basketball people. So. Like they, uh, the application for a uh, you know a franchise came in February. It was improved, approved in March. Within days, they were contacting the Hawks to try to to try to land Maravich, and and it was it was a credibility move, uh, sort of a, a quick um, quick fix with the fan base. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it, it took a huge chunk out of their their foundation in a player sense. But obviously, they had one of the best guards in the game. I think Pete finished second in the league in scoring in 73-74. And, uh, so they did. That credibility was there. But uh, beyond Pete, there was very, very little. If you have a look at the his time in the New Orleans Jazz, sorry. I mean, he averaged, that first year he came in, 21 points, um, five rebounds, 6.2 assists, they're saying. Um, I mean... This guy, he could obviously play, and that just got better. I mean, the, what, 76, 77, they reckon he averaged 31 points or something like that. Looked like he was carrying them, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so when Pistol Pete, we'll back up a little bit. When Pistol, Pistol Pete came into the league, it was with the Atlanta Hawks, from what I understand. Um, was he a star from day one? Was coming out of LSU, obviously he was the, the leader in, in points. Was he received like that straight away? Uh, yeah, like I mean, Pete had a very celebrated college career, as we've touched on, and he was the the subject of a bidding war between, uh, obviously, the Atlanta Hawks, uh, the Carolina Cougars of the ABA, and, and even the Globetrotters. So, yes, he was a star, but beyond that, in in an era where capitalising on, um, you know, making money, he was seen as a draw card. So, a big big reason that the Hawks um, were able to obtain him uh, was from a trade with the Warriors the previous year where they had obtained the number three pick. But a big motivating factor behind them obtaining him was uh, to effectively proceed with getting the Omni belt, which um, the Hawks played there through to the, uh, I believe, the 97 season. So um, getting financial backing to build a new arena was a big motivating factor in the Hawks getting him. The Hawks were a successful team. They'd been a playoff team in 1970 uh, and had had success uh, with a mostly a black roster of players. So Pete coming in, you know, you had guys like uh, Joe Caldwell, who was a very, very fine professional player, Lou Hudson, guys who um, were deserving of more money than they were on. And then you get Pete coming in, he gets, uh, you know, $2 million to effectively, without playing a game, in addition to endorsements, probably at a time when endorsements were not a real uh, big player for, for individual um, individual or 
players in a team sport. So Maravich came with a lot of hoopla. The time in Atlanta was difficult. Um, they didn't win much. Yes, they made the playoffs in three out of four years, but they didn't win enough to sort of justify, uh, you know, getting him. Um, he was always the subject of, of intense scrutiny. He developed, you know, mononucleosis before his second season. He had Bell's palsy on two different occasions, even during uh, the 1973 season, which was one of his best um, as a professional. So you can see that the the anxiety and stress was taking a personal toll. And by 1974, uh, he was effectively available for trade. And, you know, Pat Williams, who was the GM of the Hawks at the time, uh, has been on record as saying there was, you know, very little interest. So I think his reputation, his salary, uh, you know, he, he had never been in a situation where his teams had been successful and not necessarily his fault. So there was a real dichotomy there with Maravich. There was a, a faction of the basketball community that would just thought he was unbelievable, a great talent. And then there was another that... Um, that really thought he was overrated, selfish, um, you know, driven by the need to be a showman as opposed to playing with substance. So there was a real divided opinion on by the time he got to the Jazz on, on whether or not he was actually worth his weight in gold. So to go to an expansion team is really like resetting and, and there was no possibility to win. So um, that it reinforced really that, that uh, stigma that he was an individual. Yeah, and when he then got traded over to the uh, over to the Jazz, you know, like we talked about, there was I suppose they mortgaged the future a bit to get him. Um, the team around him, because of this, I suppose, on flow effect that they just didn't have assets to be able to get good players. Um, he was then in sort of a, a lower ranked team than than Atlanta, and and these guys struggled a, a fair bit. Uh, was he the I suppose I know he's the draw card, but was it the Pete, the, the Pete Maravich show, I guess, down there? Is that what everyone would come yeah. to see and the rest was just part and parcel? Yeah, there's no doubt. And and one of the reasons that the, the league granted a franchise um, was a nine-man group that, that effectively took over the Jazz is because the Superdome was being built. And the expectation was that if you could marry together professional basketball with, you know, one of the first domes that, that would house professional basketball, it, you know, would drive attendance. It would, you know, almost be a, a, a surefire moneymaker. But a, a big problem with the Jazz at that time was they were being ran by non-basketball people. So um, the ownership um, had very little background in basketball. The general manager at the time had had was had a marketing background. Uh, they were putting people in places where they shouldn't have been, and what resulted was. Yeah, really a, a poor cast um, of players alongside Pete. And yeah, like I said before, it reinforced that notion that um, it really didn't matter how the Jazz did. What really mattered was how many Pete, uh, you know, how many points Pete got. You know, uh, the, the thrilling the fans. Um, you know, being in in New Orleans and and being the, the favourite son. But uh, the basketball decisions that were made were really off kilter. And, and as a result, the team was never truly successful um, in the five years it spent in New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, those five years, the glorious years, and, you know, they're still thought of fondly, I guess, by uh, the New Orleans faithful. And everyone knows the name Pistol Pete Maravich. And, and, but besides that, I suppose, you know, I can't dig out any, any more names off the top of my head besides him. Um, when it was... Uh, but did we get to the point where it was so financially, I suppose, uh, difficult to keep going that there was that force to, to Utah or that move? Yeah, so one of the, the, the factors in the move, um, which, which came in April of 79, was, was the fact that um, New Orleans was home to the Mardi Gras each year. So, you know, in, if you go back and look at the Jazz schedule in December and January of every year, they would just they would leave New Orleans. I think, and I'm going from memory here, They, I don't think Pete played a game in New Orleans in the month of December in, in each of his first two years in New Orleans because the team was just gone for that period of time. Uh, one of the reasons they got off to the, I think it was 3-34 and 34 start 
in uh, 74, 75 is because um, they, they played in two homes. Um, the uh, municipal auditorium was housing the Mardi Gras and, and they, their, their other uh, Loyola Fieldhouse was their other um, home base during that first year. They couldn't get dates in there. So, you know, they were on the road for a large portion of the first half of the year. They got off to a shocking start and that problem sort of plagued the team. Um, they owe, uh, the, the, the team owed a lot of money to the Superdome by the time 1979 came around. Uh, they, I think I believe in, in 1978 they still owed the team uh, owed the Superdome money from the 75 76 season. So they were three years, you know, in arrears financially. Uh, Pete got hurt during the 77 78 season, and um, a possibility of making the playoffs was gone. So all these factors mixed in together. Um, it could have been successful if it was managed by the right people, but it just wasn't. And then you see this, these what-ifs. Um, you know, he went off and played in Utah and then, uh, then to Boston, I believe. And then, um, and then it was, that, was, that was all, wasn't it? And then by 1980, he was, he was retired. And um, am I correct in saying that? That was, that was the show's over and, and all of a sudden the showman had, had hung up the boots. Yeah, that's right, at the age of 33. So, I mean, there were good years in, in, in New Orleans. He led the league in scoring, as you mentioned, in 76-77. Um, and he was leading the league in scoring in 78. Um, he got hurt January 31, 1978 versus Buffalo. And, and you know, we talk about the showmanship and the importance to the, to the, the fan base. Well, you know, he was in the game, uh, a blowout win. And, uh, you know, tried to, you know, threw a pass three quarters of the length of the floor between his legs and, of course, landed awkwardly. Uh, his knee was never the same um, after that. He played a little bit uh, in the 79 season. Attendance took a nosedive. Uh, you know, the team relocates to Utah. Basically, there's new management in, in Utah and they make the decision that, you know, he's, he's not part of their future. Gets traded, you know, well, he gets waived, uh, I beg your pardon, and signs with Boston. Uh, had a decision between Boston and Philadelphia and decided with, uh, with Boston. Philadelphia ended up making the finals that year and then he retires in 1980 and Boston wins the title the next season. So he couldn't catch a break, um, unfortunately, Pete. And, uh, yeah, uh, retired at 33 and, you know, Nowadays, there are still players who are very, very productive at that age. And you'd like to think with modern medicine and um, a couple of breaks here and there that, that Pete could have become this, this grand old man of basketball, but he just, just didn't happen for him. And uh, yeah, he was gone uh, after 10 years in the NBA, just 10 and really only played, if you add up the games he played, he probably only played maybe seven or eight years in total. So we only had him a very short time. And it's such a shame when you see talents like this and transcendent talents where you still hear about them today. Um, like if, if you hear that name, you go, oh, yeah, no, I know who that guy is. And yep. I don't think there's many guys like that, even in today's, maybe a handful of guys that uh, I suppose transcend generations. Um, I hadn't realised until I started yeah, talking to you and learning about it, that you didn't really play for that that long in, in comparison, you know, 33, they're saying that's sort of the end of your prime thereabouts. You still got probably another yes. three or four years in, in today's league yeah. minimum. And uh, I mean, after that, he, he was, re he retired. Um, and then, so you said he, he retired at 33 and then by 40, he had, he'd passed away. And that was another shocking, I suppose, surprise thing that, um, how did that play out? That was, that was, um, Unexpected, wasn't it? Well, it was sort of, um, you know, Pete spent, uh, evidently spent his life searching for, for a meaning. Um, you know, he went through various phases of, um, you know, trying to find a purpose for, for why he was alive. And, you know, I think something to rescue him from his, his personal issues. His mother committed suicide in October of 74, um, he, he went through, you know, bouts with, with alcoholism during his playing career. By the time he retired, he, uh, you know, really felt an emptiness. 
he uh, he became a born again Christian in November of '82, and what came with that was a new meaning, um, a new purpose for living. And so he he spent his 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 last years alive um, speaking about his faith um, in a very public way. He he became a speaker. Um, he was doing a lot of basketball clinics. Um, he was slowly re-emerging on the NBA scene. He would appear at the Legends game uh, every year and was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1987. So, But unfortunately, yeah, he passed away on, on January 5, 1988. Um, he was missing a coronary artery. So, you know, everyone has two and, and he only had one and, and it went undiagnosed. So uh, he died suddenly at the age of 40 and, yeah, um, left behind two sons and, yeah, very, very tragic thing. And what a wonderful thing it would be if he was still alive and, and could, you know, obviously share his wisdom and, and his memories and, and probably contrib- would have contributed something um, or contributed more to the game of basketball. So um, a career cut short and unfortunately a life uh, cut short as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a shame to, to hear things like that. And, you know, um, when, you, when you lose guys like that, there's this knowledge and there's this wealth of, I suppose, um, talent and knowledge and, and mentoring that could, you just say what if it's a big question mark yeah. and to see what this guy did during his career to that not him not to be sitting courtside you know with the, like bill russell's and yeah. guys like that that's sitting there with all the rings and and talking about uh basketball from generations uh gone by oh it's devastating and you just yeah you never you never know what would have happened there you get 40 you've, you've got a lot of life to live and to have one coronary artery i mean that's that's unbelievable that he he got as long, he lived as long as he did. Really, they're pretty essential <laughs> arteries to have. Well, uh, you know, uh, you know, autopsies and things that that came out afterwards, studies about his you know, um, about his health. Uh, apparently, you know, most people who have that condition uh, die in their teens. Um, but from what I understand. Um, the existing artery that he did have, coronary artery, was actually larger and had compensated by wrapping itself around his heart and in a way made his heart, I guess, stronger on an interim basis. But as I said, it was undiagnosed. But, uh, you know, you made a great point about the wealth of knowledge that we've lost out on. You're right, he he should be that person that, um, because of his contribution, you know, stylistically to the game of basketball, he should should be still here and he should be, you know, you should see him at the All-Star Weekend and, you know, you should see him contributing in some way, somewhere with um, all that he had to offer. And, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously very, very sad that, that he was not able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we rewind, and, I mean, I want to talk about his most, I suppose what he's most famous for is his LSU career. I know I've jumped all around, but I thought I would leave that to last because that's what I suppose he was... He was most famous for. I mean, he was coached by his dad, I think, for a while, and um, and yep. he absolutely dominated this uh, this uh, LSU career. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? The uh, the career that he had at LSU, like you said, his uh, his freshman, he didn't play. Uh, he couldn't play in the actual senior team. It was just the the juniors, I think. Yeah, that's right. So uh, you're correct. He did play for his father, Press, uh, who was who was a a great college coach. He had, he had won an ACC title at Clemson and uh, Pete played high school basketball in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, but uh, he did a, a year of military school before he went to LSU and obviously only went there because of his father. I believe uh, Pete's intention was to go to West Virginia and follow in the footsteps of, of Jerry West. But when his father was at LSU and promised to, uh, to buy him a car, he, he made the decision to go to LSU and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting period of time. Yes, um, you know, Pete set records, um, records that are likely never to be touched. But I think uh, what happened there was it was the birth of the expectation that Pete play a certain way. You know, his father was a brilliant coach uh, and he'd really built uh, Pete almost uh, to be what he perceived the perfect basketball player. So he had him do, you know, an endless array of drills and, and, and built his skill level up 
really to a, a level that's perhaps unmatched even even today. But uh, what came with that was the expectation and the demand from the public that the showmanship be sort of the everlasting part of his game. And, and I think what got compromised and even what got compromised from his father uh, was everything else went out the window. I mentioned, you know, Press Maravich's success prior to LSU. Well, he felt that LSU could only win if, if Pete took a majority of the shots. And what resulted was, you know, a record-setting college career, but LSU did not have much success um, in the SEC. They never made the NCAA tournament. And even Press compromised his coaching style in order to accentuate um, the things that Pete did better than anyone before or since, and that was the shooting, the dribbling, the passing. He really accentuated all those um, elements of his game. And yes, you know, an unbelievable college career, but you would like to think that perhaps in a better setting, a more, you know, a better functioning setting that, you know, he could have even be even better averaging 25 to 30 points, averaging eight to 10 assists around better players. And, you know, uh, there would have been greater team success. Yeah, and I think we're all judged by that at, at the end. And we always judge the, uh, the legends of, of their success. And it's such a shame that he, he just never really got across the line there. And I think it was purely because he was such a, uh, I guess, icon is that it was difficult to be standing in the same light as him on the court. So, yeah. um, I mean, I, I really appreciate what you've, you, you've shed some light on on Pistol Pete. Um, I mean, yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything to plug while I've, while I've got you? Um, is there anything coming up that we can look forward to, which we can get... Get people out there and, and having a look at what what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I've been working for the past eighteen months on a an encyclopedia of the NBA Finals. So uh, I've got a, probably another twelve months of research. But yeah, it's going to be a, a big book, sort of a compendium um, with lots of new information there. So I'm really excited about it. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I need to work on my patience because I want to get to the finish line. But yeah, there's a lot of work to be done uh, in the meantime. But uh, working on that at the moment and uh, really excited about it. That sounds awesome. Well, sign me up for a copy. That, yeah, copy that'll be awesome. I'll be looking forward to, to sinking my teeth into that. Um, Todd, I honestly, again, I appreciate your time, taking the time to speak with me and, and for our listeners at, uh, at the Pelican Scoop at Hootball. Um, thanks once again and, and I appreciate uh, all that you've done. And guys, if you're listening out there, go and buy a copy of Todd's book. Go and get it, read it. Tweet us, let us know what you think. I reckon it's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward. If we didn't have this COVID, I'm sure it would already have arrived, but we're uh, waiting for that because of postal issues. But, <laughs> um, but Todd, yeah, thanks very much. And uh, hopefully we can speak soon. I appreciate having me on, uh, Lyle, to talk about Pete. And, uh, yeah, and also the kind words, mate. So thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. We'll, uh, no doubt uh, we'll be hearing more soon about Pete and uh, we look forward to, to catching up soon. Thanks, mate. All the best. So how good was that? Great chat with Todd Spear. That was a couple of weeks ago now uh, that we jumped on and, and chatted Pistol Pete. Absolute wealth of knowledge and really appreciate his time as always. Guys, as I said beforehand, run out and grab Todd Spear's book, Drazen Petrovic, the life and legacy of the Mozart of basketball. You can get that on Amazon, as he said. Um, yeah, fantastic book, and we're looking forward to his compendium coming out about the NBA Finals. Now, guys, what we're going to have a chat about is the first Pell scrimmage. Awesome. NBA TV had it on. Uh, Pelicans.com was also streaming it. Uh, so the bounce down or tip off was yesterday being the 23rd of July. Um, we took on the Brooklyn Nets. First thoughts of the venue. So it's set up similar to the basketball tournament, if you were following along with that. And the, uh, the videos they had there, the stadium uh, is socially distanced. But they had a whole heap of graphics. It was a Brooklyn home game. So there was the Brooklyn graphics all over the back wall. Uh, they had this stadium announcer in there... Uh, announcing anytime someone made a shot. 
um, which was, I thought, a nice touch. It added to the authenticity. As soon as the commentary came in over the top, it was a lot more like uh, normal basketball and you could get back into it. Uh, there was a few technical errors on the stream I was watching for a while, um, but otherwise it was it was all good. It was good fun. We started off the first quarter um, quickly. I thought we came out really fast. Um, the Brooklyn Nets were missing a whole heap of players, as we knew coming into this. So wasn't a surprise that we gave them the jump. Jackson Hayes, I thought, as a young bloke, started really well. He seemed to have used that off-season to really work on his defensive positioning. I thought that was important. He, he caused a lot of disruptions throughout the Nets' offense, which I thought was was perfect. Um, Lonzo started off a little bit quickly and, and, and rushed a pass at one point. Um, but then all of a sudden it turned into in and out and he hit it, hit a big three. So I have no issues with that. The guys, this is, these scrimmages are there to get the rust out. Um, there's a few lapses on the perimeter, which we talked about in early in, in the season. And again, it's all rust factor. No, you know, we're looking at this to get these guys right so that when they get back in to play these eight games coming up, they're going to be in shape, they're going to be ready to go, and the chemistry will have reignited. So we're excited to see that. Um, they had a few open threes and um, had a, a point guard on the nets who was lighting us up, Chioza. Um, yeah, he, he looks good. So, I mean, if we're looking for a backup point guard and he's a free agent, he might be someone to have a look as a third or fourth string point guard. But anyway, that's just my opinion. Uh... JJ Redick had some good hustle movements in the first quarter. Um, not bad for the old bloke who was diving on everything. Um, another on-floor presence. Um, Josh Hart, he, he did miss one three, and it was just taking a bit of time to get his legs under him. And that, again, it's all this rust. You know, we can't take too much from the scrimmages purely because, you know, they're just trying things out. And that was... Um, I suppose, accentuated by the four-guard lineup that we ran for a while. So there was um, a cycling of, of Drew, Lonzo, uh, Nikhil, JJ Redick, Josh Hart, and Etwan Moore. So at, at points, we had all four of them on, and then Jackson Hayes. Um, and it was interesting to see that we were going that four small. But again, it seemed to work. Uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the first quarter... 23-14 to 14 in favour of New Orleans. The Nets just, they were they were blowing it. They had 14 points on 18 shots. Um, they were they were not looking good. And everything we, we knew about Karis LeVert being a bit of a um, trigger happy, it was, I suppose, accentuated by um, the fact there was no one else. So he took a lot of shots and he missed a lot of shots, unfortunately. Heading into the second quarter, we stayed with the four-guard lineup which I didn't mind. It was good to get a bit of continuality. Um, Etwan Moore started really well. There was a lot of good movement um, of the ball, and then Etwan Moore splashed a couple of big threes. Uh, Lonzo hit a three. It was it was good to see that the confidence was there to light it up from distance and, and to make them. Um, Lonzo's three-point shot continues to improve, and I think if that is something that may, he maintains we're in very good stead going forward because that spacing from your point guard is so important. Um, Hart took it to the rack. He uh, slithered in and, and laid it in, which was nice. Each one more big steal uh, to a Hart driving kick. Hit a fading JJ Redick. That was a one of his st- signature shots in the second quarter. He was fading sideways and hit a massive three. Um, then we went back to our old ways and didn't secure the defensive rebound at the end of the possession. It was very frustrating to see because the guys know what they're doing, but again, maybe that's the four-guard lineup. We were too short, but what can you do? Um, we didn't see much of B.I. in this quarter. We only saw him mostly in the first quarter for the whole game, but um, I think we understood that a few of these uh, bench guys were going to get a bit of a run, and um, they were trying a few different things out. Um, especially with no Zion Williamson, who, um, if you hadn't heard, he is not in the bubble at the moment. He's at home for a family emergency, so hopefully he's all good there. Um, Favors also wasn't playing, um, I think, just for management purposes. But, um, yeah, in the end of the second quarter, we were up 56-35. to 35. 
So we head into the third quarter. Drew looking strong, strong defensively on the perimeter, um, going to the rack as well. We mucked around for a bit. There was a bit of confusion. 24 shot, uh, second shot clock violation, which you just you don't like to see. Someone's got to put it up. You've got to be aware of, of where you are on the court and how much time you've got. Um, Jackson Hayes jumped up, offensive interference. I don't mind that. He it was a, jumped probably a little bit too early, but otherwise, keep crashing the glass. If you're up there, mate, and you've got the athleticism, go up there and dunk it in. You're going to get him more often than you're not. Um, a guy that surprised me was Jalil Okafor. He came in and just went to work in the post. It was old school. It was flashes of Al Jefferson almost. Um, up and unders. He did a little post uh, hook. He uh, also did a drop step and then into a jam. Yeah, I was I was big fan of uh, of Jar in, in this quarter. He, um, he looked great. Uh, Kendrick Williams had come in for his first few minutes. Um, he drove in, dumped it off to Jar, another big dunk. Kenny Hustle, as his, as his moniker goes, was diving, he dove out of bounds. He drew a foul, big charge, uh, which he drew. And then Okafar, out on the perimeter, locked up um, Jared Allen, which, again, phenomenal to see. Uh, we had the bench on for this quarter. I mean, we started running away with it more Jar, Frank Jackson, Nor, and Kenny Hustle were the uh, were the five. Not mad about it. They look really good. And, and if our bench can play that well against um, every team, we're going to be held in good stead. Uh, New Orleans, spoiler alert, at the end of the third quarter, 71-54. to 54. Heading into the fourth quarter, Etwan Moore was still in. He had a good reverse layup, um, which we liked. Kenny Hustle, he drew another foul. He is really good at drawing charges. He gets set. Awesome. And if you can keep that going, that makes you an important part of your rotation because you can put a guy in there and, and he disrupts. And a disruptor is important. So we're impo- we're glad we've got him on the team and, and hopefully he can keep that effort up. Um, yeah, you, you can't teach um, attitude and, and hustle. So that that's, um, that's pretty good. Uh, Frank Jackson threw it down. We were happy with that. Uh, he took on Jared Allen at a different point as well. Went straight at him. I don't mind that. Good on him. Go and get it. Happy with that. Uh, finishing off in the fourth quarter, um, Jackson Hayes pulled the chair out of, out on Allen at one point. That was good patience. He didn't foul. He just let it happen. Frank Jackson earned the, uh, the moniker Baby Fro from the commentators. That was quite uh, hilarious when he was walking along next to... Um, Jared Allen and it was yeah it looked like a, a smaller version of, of Jared Allen so it was very funny uh, the haircuts and you can see that they're all due for the barber and I think that's getting built in the bubble at the moment so no doubt a few of the guys will be getting in there and, and getting a cut soon enough um, the bench points at this point of uh, about the 4 minute mark left of the 4th um, bench points 38 to 22 which is just phenomenal that we've got those guys doing that um, the ball movement was good from the uh, from the bench. Uh, Nikhil, he went in for the layup. He did that well. Frank, big three. We got to see a bit of Sindaris Thornwell as well. Um, and he caused a steal straight away, which is phenomenal. Uh, we're happy with that. He, he, again, locked a few guys up. Really good. Another guy that... Um, that, again, I'm going to mention is, is Jaleel Okafar. He, he hit him with the shake and bake in the post. Little baby hook. That was awesome. Pick and roll slam. Um, we also got to see Zylan Cheatham. He came in. He uh, he wanted a lob immediately, and that shows his likelihood of... Ath- well, he must have some sort of athleticism if he's calling for that. Fortunately, it was broken up, but otherwise, they did really, really well. Um, Jar up and under again. He was killing him in the post. Unfortunately, at the end, it looked like um, they were onto him, and, and he, he had a turnover. He got a little bit too keen, and the ball slipped out of his hands. A little bit of uh, Nikhil playing the point in the last minute or so, which I don't mind. I think that's good to have those guard skills developed early. Spoiler: the final game, uh, the final score of the game, 99 to 68 in favour of New Orleans. So we gave them a touch up. We're really happy with that. Um, the next scrimmage comes up in a couple of days. Again, NewOrleans.com is streaming them. I think as well, NBA TV will have them on there. So make sure you go and have a look at that if you're missing your. New Orleans Pelicans 
stuff uh, and your team and, you know, we we love the Pelicans here. So, for us, any Pelicans basketball is good Pelicans basketball. Um, as always, make sure you like and subscribe to the show. This is a hoop-ball.com presentation. There's heaps going on over at HoopBall. We're all firing back up. All the shows are going Um so if you're looking for your team, we've got a whole heap of team coverage. We've got daily fantasy uh, shows. We've got um, yeah, season-long shows. We've also got the partnership with Manscaped.com. Manscaped.com. If you use the code at checkout, HoopBall20. So HoopBall20 at checkout, you'll get free shipping and also 20% off your offer. So make sure you go and have a look over there for all your grooming products. I've got powders and oils and all other things, boxer shorts, whatever you want. The Lawnmower 3.0 with its built-in LED light. Guys, make sure you go over and support us um, and support Manscaped because, uh, you know, we'll keep this rolling and, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So I think for now, we've just ticked over the 50-minute mark of the of the podcast and you've probably heard enough of me rattling on for today. So guys, I will leave you with this. Stay safe out there. Enjoy basketball. We're a week away. Until next time, I'm Lyle Swithenbank. This is the Pelican Scoop, a hoop-ball.com presentation. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.